Our passage this morning is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. I want to read um, verses 1 through 42 so that we can get a sense of this entire scene. Um, We're not going to get through the entire passage today, don't worry. In fact, this probably be more like a mini-series. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through this story. Uh, This is all one scene, verses 1 through 42. I think the best title um, for this, for this whole section, is really the Samaritan woman's question, can this be the Christ? This is the question that we're endeavoring to answer in our study of John's Gospel. Can this be the Christ? This is the question that should be on our minds as we, as we share the Gospel with our friends and our neighbors. Because this is what we're trying to show them. Yes, this is the Christ. There's so many deep theological issues at play in this passage throughout these 42 verses. Of course, it comes down to the identity of Jesus, that question, can this be the Christ? But mixed in here is the idea of Christ being the source of living water. We can see the historical tensions between the the Jews and the Samaritans and their respective understanding of of true worship. There's also the issue of this woman's dignity and her sin. There's a subtext underneath this of, of ritual purity and uncleanness, of evangelism and doing God's will and of believing in Him because of His Word. There's so much going on in this passage, so let's read it. And then we'll break it down together. John chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard uh, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied uh, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and and, uh, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, There are yet, do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, otherwise others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we need to know this. We need to know the answer to the question, Can this be the Christ? We need to know it more than just in our heads, but in our hearts. We need to act like we understand. Lord, we need to we need to worship the Savior of the world. So help us to understand what you would have for us today from this portion of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the one of the reasons I'm growing in my love for John's gospel as we work through this, as we study this, is because it's filled with scenes just like this. Um, Here Jesus is having another meeting with another person. Frequently he meets and, and talks with people from different walks of life and different backgrounds. We've already looked at his evening discussion with Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, back in chapter 3. And in the next section he's going to run into a Roman official whose son is dying. Then in chapter 5, he's going to heal an, an invalid, a man who'd been crippled for 38 years. So, so get this. Just in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of John's Gospel, he will talk with a, a high Jewish official, a high Roman official, a shamed Samaritan woman, and a crippled Jewish man 
who really can only be considered to be among the least of these in their society. And then after that, he has a lengthy discussion with the Pharisees. John's gospel, while it is a narrative, it tells the story of Jesus, it is also in in large part a conversation. It's filled with the words of Christ. If you want to know the person of Christ, the gospel of John is a great place to start. It shows us his words, what he said. Anyway, I am a, uh, I'm a nighttime reader. I read before I go to sleep every night. Usually there's a few books stacked up on the nightstand. Um, if you come into my study during the week in the church here, you're going to see books all over the desk as I prepare to preach and teach. I read all the time, not just at night. I try to keep a book with me in the car uh, for those times when I'm out and I have a few minutes to, to kill and I don't want to waste it on my phone. Usually I just end up wasting it on my phone. But at night, in the evening, before I go to bed, before I go to sleep, I found that I need something, I need something light to read. That's not the time for me to read deep theology. I'll read one page and out like a light. But I can find something light, uh, some fiction or a, a biography, something that it doesn't really matter if it really is sinking in very deeply. Uh, I'm tired. I'm not going to remember it in the morning. I won't remember where I left off when I find the book in the bed or whatever. Don't read this passage like that. Don't read it like that. See, this passage that we just read, John 4, 1 through 42, it breaks into into three large parts. There's three large sections here. There's conversation, there's exposition, and response. And it would be helpful for you to understand the big picture if you're able to either, either write those things down or make some kind of notation as to, really, as to what's happening in each of these parts. So the first section is, is conversation. It's really verses 1 through 27. Now, now the conversation in particular breaks down even further, and we're going to do that in a moment. But largely, John 4, 1 through 27, is the account of the, of the conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. We often remember this story as the woman at the well. The second section is actually verses 31 to 38. I call this section the exposition. Now, exposition is, is defined as a, it's a comprehensive description, an explanation of an idea or a theory. So the, the type of preaching that I do when we go through a book, we go through a passage of Scripture verse by verse, we call it expository, pre- expository preaching. Um, just means that we work through a passage and expose the meaning of the text. Sorry. It means I have to trim my beard probably. So exposition, we're just exposing the meaning of the text. That's what Jesus does for his disciples in verses 31 to 38. He exposes to them the meaning of his conversation with the the Samaritan woman. Because the purpose of this encounter is bigger than what they think when they they walk back and they they see him uh, talking with this questionable woman. They walk back with lunch with some sandwiches and they find him talking with a questionable lady. The issue that's happening behind the scenes is bigger than what it looks like. We're going to get into that, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. 
But then the final section of this passage, it's actually two smaller sections put together. Verses 28, 29, and 30, and then 39 to 42. And we're calling that the response. The response to the conversation and the exposition. I think you can see why we're calling it that. Because we're going to look when we get there at how both the Samaritan woman and then how the Samaritan townspeople respond to Jesus. Let's go back and look at the conversation, though. I said uh, that this section, conversation, can be broken down further. And the simplest way to begin to see this is that verses 1 through 6 give us this background and setting as to why uh, Jesus is there talking with this woman in the first place. So verse 1, just 1 through 3. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus, had, at this point in his ministry, and, and it's pretty early on, he's growing in, in notoriety. He, he's growing in influence. Remember what has happened in the last couple of chapters we have seen a couple of private conversations, but he also, in chapter 2, cleansed the temple. People are starting to understand who he is, or at least that he is somebody. He's gaining influence. He's gaining disciples, followers. He also has a distinctive message. Only Jesus is saying that you must be born again. Because of this unique message, he's gaining and, and the increasing attention of the Pharisees. He's already spent some time talking with Nicodemus, um, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He's gaining, as we said, more and more disciples, and more and more people are being baptized into his group, we could say. And so probably so that he doesn't draw undue negative attention to himself at this point, because his time had not yet come. Also probably because John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, had not yet been fulfilled, completed. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus left Judea and he headed north into Galilee. So pick up the story in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So in order for Jesus to get to Galilee, the apostle John, in writing here, he tells us that he, that he had to pass through the region of Samaria. It's an interesting choice of words in this sentence. Had to. What does it mean that Jesus had to pass through Samaria? Well, some have said that the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they wouldn't even step foot in their region. They would even travel all the way around in order to avoid going through Samaria. That's probably true to some extent. I think probably the most pious of the Pharisees did that. The Bible doesn't really tell us all of that. And so we could say something like this, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because it was the, the most available, the shortest, the most direct route. So in order for us to get to Columbus from here, we have to pass through Marysville. And that's, while that is true, it's probably more than that. See, had to is a synonym for the word must, right? 
We could exchange those words. You, you can use them interchangeably. In order to get to Columbus, you must go through Marysville. In order to get to Galilee, you must pass through Samaria. And if that's true, then Jesus' passing through Samaria is part of his divine mission. Let me give you some verses to help uh, show you what I mean. These demonstrate the significance of the fact that Jesus had to or that he must pass through Samaria as part of his divine mission. Three times in chapter 3, we read these words in verse 7. You must be born again. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. Later in chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Chapter 12, verse 34, So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then, of course, chapter 20 and verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Must is an important word in Jesus' mission. See, this phrase here, that he had to pass through Samaria. This isn't just a, a Google Maps, pick the quickest route issue. This is about Jesus' purpose for being born in the flesh. See, the reason that Jesus had to pass through Samaria was to fulfill, or at least begin to fulfill, God's promise to Abram. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We've been talking about this in Sunday school. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families. Not just the Jews. The Samaritans too. Even the Samaritans will be blessed. And then later, just before his ascension, just before he left the disciples to carry on his work, he says to them in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was part of Jesus' mission. He had to pass through Samaria. He must do this. Well, there's a lot that we could say about the Samaritans, but suffice it to say this, by the, by the time of Christ, they were essentially political and religious enemies of the Jews. But since both groups, both the Samaritans and the Jews were kind of forcefully ruled by the Romans, they needed to live together in kind of a, a grumbling, involuntary truce. It's almost like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, except they weren't friends. They viewed each other with suspicion. They viewed each other with animosity. There was certainly some racist issues going on here. 
The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds because they were, the, they were the offspring of the union between the northern tribes of Israel and the pagans of Canaan. And their worship was a mix of, of Jewish customs and pagan idolatry. And, and Jesus' mission leads him essentially right into the heart of this enemy territory. But as I said, because of the Roman occupiers and because of God's sovereignty, they're safe. Jesus and his disciples as they travel through here. But here in verse 5, there's a strange reference to a couple of the fathers of the nation of Israel. And the Samaritans would claim them as well. Uh, Jacob and Joseph. I think there's two reasons why this is specifically mentioned. The first, I think this puts it on the map. This identifies for John's original readers, and really even for us, that this happened in a real place. The implication here is that you can go and find this place, that they, John's original readers, could, could go find Jacob's well. Maybe they would even know where it was. They could ask around. People will probably remember this story. In fact, today, we still know where Jacob's well was, or is, we still can go there and find it, and probably is filled with tourist-type things now. But then the second, and I think more significant, reason that these are mentioned, Jacob and uh, Joseph specifically, are mentioned here, is to show us how this connects with the larger story of the history of God, of the history of God working with his people. The setting is not merely first-century first Samaria. The setting, really, is the same dirt upon which God has been working on his people for centuries. Jacob and Joseph passed through. She will say later that they, they fed their animals from this well centuries earlier. The fathers of this nation, those to whom God gave the promise. God has been working on his people in this same land promised land for centuries. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there's this prophecy, and it, and it really concerns the, the coming Messiah, and it says that he will come from the tribe of Judah, the, the Jews, and it's spoken by Jacob to Joseph and his brothers. And Jacob says this, chapter 49, he gives a blessing to all of his sons, but specifically, and Joseph would have heard this, he says to Judah in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We know that ultimately is fulfilled only in Christ. And here Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting there beside Jacob's well. The one to whom that promise was really about is sitting there at the well, thirsty and tired. And he's sitting there, it says at the sixth hour, at noontime, at the heat of the day, high noon. And then one last word before we move into this next section. The word became flesh, and he was tired and thirsty. Jesus Fully God or holy God, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy God and holy man needed a break and he needed a drink of water. And he sits down at this well 
And so beginning in verse 7 is where we really see the conversation actually begin. So just look at 7 and 8. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, at first glance, this is entirely unremarkable. Can I have a drink? Give me a drink. Uh, at least to us. We look at this with our eyes now, and it looks like just somebody asking for a glass of water. But women at this time typically did not venture out of town alone like this. Their safety in numbers. And when they did go out to draw water, not only would it have been in a group, it, it would have been either earlier in the day or later in the day and not at high noon. Now we're going to find out down in verse 18 that she's had some sort of immoral lifestyle. Um, it is unthinkable to be married this many times in this society. It's even more repulsive to have been living with someone. Probably that meant that that someone, that other man that she now lived with, refused to marry her. As a result, she was evidently isolated from her society. The other women didn't want to be seen with her. It's likely they would have disparaged her. They would have talked down to her if she tried to get water when they did. And so, so here we find her out in the heat of the day by herself in really in danger from robbers getting water. And we should be reminded at this point, whatever her reason for being at the well alone, she had to be there in the same way that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, this was all part of Jesus' God-ordained mission. And since they're alone, Jesus takes the opportunity to talk with her. The custom of Jewish men in Jesus' day was to view Samaritan women in general, all Samaritan women, as ceremonially unclean. What started as a, as a religious distinction, they were not fully Jewish after all, the Samaritans. This sort of distinction of clean and unclean, it had developed into a prejudiced and even racist view that they were not to be associated with ever. These women will make you unclean. That was the viewpoint of the Jewish men. It was a well-known way of thinking for the Jews. So imagine her surprise when Jesus says in verse 9, the Samaritan, uh, let's see, verse 8, give me a drink. Her surprised answer, the Samaritan woman said to him, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. My guess is that when she first saw him sitting there, before any words were spoken, as she's walking up and there's a strange Jewish guy sitting at the well, that she felt the awkwardness of the situation. That she was uncomfortable. Strange Jewish man, obviously. Edge of town. No one else around. Give me a drink. I think her response there in verse 9 is a little defensive. I think she's trying to shut him up. I think she's trying to scare him away. I think she's trying to get him to leave. I think she's used to being shamed and put down by her own people in her own town to say nothing about the other. This was probably her regular practice. Noon, every day, going and getting water. I'm sure she ran into other Jewish men walking through the area who wanted water from the well. 
Instead of quietly denying his request, or even granting it, you want some water? Here you go. Now you're unclean. She actually fires back at him. You talking to me? You must be talking to me. I'm the only one here. Why are you talking to me? This woman in even her own eyes was the lowest of the low. If Jesus drank from her, her pitcher, her cup, her, her bucket or whatever she was carrying for the water, it would make him ceremonially unclean. He would catch her uncleanness. He would not be able to participate in his normal religious worship. And he would need to be separated from his people. He would need to be separated from his own community for a time. What she doesn't know is that for Jesus, the opposite is true. What he touches, he purifies. Matthew chapter 8. Just listen to verses 1 through 4. Matthew 8 verse 1 says this. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper. Now this is the height of uncleanness. The worst of the worst. A leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. In other words, make the sacrifices of cleanliness. I want to point out the obvious spiritual connection here. The idea of being clean or unclean in the Bible represents holiness and unholiness. It represents purity or defilement, righteousness or sinfulness. And because Jesus was the perfect and holy God in the flesh, she couldn't do anything to cause him to be anything less than holy. But he, he could take this shamed, unholy, sinful woman who obviously had relationship issues. He could take her and he could make her holy. He could make her clean. Even a Samaritan. Even a Samaritan. Even someone trapped in sexual sin. Even somebody trapped in sexual sin. Do you hear that? This is what John will say in his, in his first letter. In 1 John chapter 5, he will write this. He said, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Jesus can make this woman holy. Jesus can make even you holy. Jesus can make us holy. 
whatever the sin is. Now think about this for a second. I'm not going to dwell too long on this. But sexual sin is rampant in our society. We know that, right? It is rampant. It is glorified in many ways now. Even just in the last few years, sexual sin has become more and more cool. We would be foolish to think that it wasn't infecting even our church, even our families. Jesus can make you holy. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pick it up in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, in this verse, Jesus reveals his hand a little bit. And he actually makes a few incredible points just in this verse. I'm just going to point out two of them. First, he uses the phrase, the gift of God. Did you notice that? Did you catch that? If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? According to scripture, James 1 verse 17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God's gift is good and perfect. And then four times in the New Testament, three times in Acts and once in Hebrews, but four times in the New Testament we're told that the Holy Spirit is a gift from both God the Father and Jesus the Son. For example, Acts chapter 10, verse 45 says this, And the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. But despite what some, for example, what some Pentecostals would say, the scriptures teach us that the gift of the Holy Spirit is tied to the larger gift of salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter is preaching. He says to them, repent. This is his conclusion. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our ultimate salvation. Paul will explain this in Ephesians 1. 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that the gift of God is yours. And this is the gift of God. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You knew that before I said all that about the Holy Spirit, probably. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is the gift of God the Father, who made us alive together with Christ and sealed us with his Holy Spirit. The gift is what? 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. The gift of God is that you have been saved by grace through faith. And this gift is rooted in the identity of God. It's rooted in the Godhead, rooted in the trinity of who God is. The Father made us alive together with Christ and sealed us with the Holy Spirit. But the second phrase that I want to point out, not only does he say, does he say that if you knew the gift of God, he also uses another phrase, and this is the one that this woman picks up on, living water. This is what she uh, stands out to her. Uh, clearly, Jesus is using a, a play on words. My guess is that when he says this, she has some sort of pitcher in her hand, filled with water or about to be filled with water. Maybe she's even getting it up out of the well. But whatever the case, water is on her mind. That's why she's there. He's just asked her for water. He wants her to think about water. What he's really referring to is more than Poland Spring, right? Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says this. The prophecy is, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Could it be that Jesus is referring to this? That God's people have rejected the, the fresh running living waters of God and his, his faithful goodness, his steadfast love? And they've instead chosen stagnant waters of their own supply, their own cracked cisterns? Could it be that Jesus is offering this, this living water to a Samaritan woman with a past and a present? Could it be that the day of the Lord was at hand? The day that Zechariah spoke of in Zechariah 14 verse 8 and on that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Could it be that these living waters, life, God's grace, his provision, purity, righteousness, transformation, salvation, could it be that these things were now being offered to sinners? Praise be to God that the answer is yes. All of these things can only be found in Christ. So you and I approach the table today. And without Christ, we are just like this woman. We're outcasts. We're the lowest of the low. We're sinners. We are unable to dine with Christ at his that's his table. We're unable to approach the table. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of us. 
But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So we approach the table this morning. We do so to proclaim his death until he comes. And we do so because the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This woman was worried that she was going to get him. I don't know if she was worried. She was letting him know that if he drank from her, her cup, if they shared that utensil, he was going to be unclean. From me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus says, you're worse than you think. And yet Jesus can make her clean. You drink from my cup instead. That's what he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, this is, um, this is us. We can see Jesus treating this woman with respect. He's, he's blunt. He's to the point. He speaks the truth, and he does so with obvious love. It gives this woman dignity. And yet, Lord, he doesn't downplay their, her sin. He hasn't downplayed our sin. And he has spoken to us with and treated us with dignity and with love. A love that is so great that he went to the cross. And took our sin upon himself. All of our sin. And so God we praise you this morning. And we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he comes. And while we are limited in number this morning and some are suffering. We pray with John. Come quickly Lord. Put an end. To the sickness. Put an end to death. Put an end to the sin that so easily entangles us. And Lord, while we wait, I pray that we would wait in faithfulness. Remembering that it is to your faithfulness that we really cling. Make us clean, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.